This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lucy Casey. Hello and welcome to this week's Lang in the News section. This week we've got some interesting pieces that we think kind of fit quite nicely under um, broader debates about language that you could characterise under the prescriptivist debate and the descriptivist debate. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we as we go through. But I think, Matt, you're going to start us off with news about irregardless. Yeah, so um, this all came from a tweet from uh, the past week or so where someone uh, was talking about um, irregardless. And it, it kind of stems from uh, the uh, Merriam-Webb dictionary who have said that irregardless is a word and a lot of people have um, taken issue with that uh, mainly I think because of the fact it, it uses the, uh, the the prefix of IR and, and attaches it to, to regardless. What, what do we all think? Do, I was curious what everyone thinks. Do we all agree that it's a word? People say it, don't they? They write it, so it's a word. <laughs> yeah, I suppose if enough people are using the word, um, enough people are saying it, and we see it written down, then then it becomes a word, doesn't it? You you can't you can't decide that words don't exist when they're, they're there in front of you, and you can hear them being used. Um, and I suppose also the fact that it's um, it's caused so much dissent um, means that it's a word that people have. Um, have very clear feelings about, very intense feelings about. I think the issue some people seem to have is that um, it's sort of like the dictionary is the sort of idea that they control what is and what isn't a word. So people were tweeting Merriam-Webster asking, is this a word, is this not a word? Well, it's not for them to decide. The, the fact it's sort of been used so many times and it's gathered a, a, a semantic meaning, it, it therefore is a word. You know, whether you don't want to use it or you don't like the meanings attached, it's... Still a word. And that seems to be a kind of long-standing uh, attitude to dictionaries, isn't it? Which is that dictionaries choose what counts as words or not. But I think when you when you when you take a little look at linguistics uh, in a bit more detail, it becomes clear that generally speaking, while general mm. while dictionaries may have started out as a gathering of words um, and may be seen by the general public as some kind of arbiter of what counts as a word, generally speaking, they're not. They just reflect back usage. Um, rather than anything else, which is why words fall out of the dictionary and words come into the dictionary. So what, what do we think is their, is their particular issue with irregardless? What's, what's the matter with it as a word, supposedly? Yeah, I think it's just this idea that um, two negatives equal a positive, which is fine in maths, but I'm not sure you can apply rules of maths to English grammar, which, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, I think we've got... Um... Robert Louth to to blame for that, haven't we? The the bishop that decided um, to write a grammar book in the 18th century, and I think he came up with the idea that uh, two negatives in English destroy one another, and that's where that uh, that idea um, stems from. But I think it's one that that is um, still very popular, and and a lot of people think um, should be followed. Um, 
I was listening to um, a clip from the National Public Radio um, and the uh, the presenter that was, was talking about irregardless and asking people, you know, what is it a word? Should we accept it? Um, and there was an author and teacher on there called Michelle Ray and she was insistent. She said, I don't care what the dictionary says. You know, if I see it in my students' work, I'm going to correct it. And that was very much her, you know, her point of view. You've got a prefix and you've got a suffix which are both negative and they can't each other out and that's it and and she, you know she wouldn't she wouldn't shift on that and that basically sums up the prescriptivist attitude isn't it which is that there are rules mm. and we follow the rules and mm. anything that doesn't follow the rules is wrong a similar thing with non-standard spelling and non-standard accents i just think as long as you can understand it as long as mm. it, it can be made sense of which irregardless can um I think the meaning is quite clear, even though there are there are these double negatives, then, you know, does it really matter that it breaks mm-hmm. these prescriptive rules? I don't think so. You know, you, you've got people who want to kind of say, well, uh, I think language should be logical, and then they see something in the dictionary, and the dictionary is saying it's a word, and they illogically then say, well, I'm not going to treat it as a word, because my feelings are more important about this. And the, the stupid thing about all of this is, is that irregardless, it's been knocking around for hundreds of years. You know, and it's actually, I think Merriam-Webster actually define it as having the same meaning as regardless. And you kind of think, oh, that's a bit illogical. But then you think, hang on a minute, in English, we've got flammable and inflammable. They mean exactly the same thing. We can cope with that. Mm. We just have to understand, you know, that not everything is going to be logical in English. And, you know, you just have to study the language for more than about 10 minutes to realise that the English language isn't logical. Um there is a kind of there's there's another angle to the sort of double negative thing as well because if if you look at other languages like French for example it's perfectly normal in French to have uh, two negatives you know when you form a negative in French you're using ne and pas ne and jamais ne and rien um, but also you know the, the the weird thing with French is of course that when you make it colloquial you actually ditch one of those so you say um, j'ai pas de j'ai pas d'argent I've got no money rather than je n'ai pas. So you, you kind of, you know, there's there's a kind of di- different way it goes in French. Yeah, whereas here it's the kind of, the what's seen as non-standard that uses the double negatives, isn't it? So I didn't do nothing. That's come out as well in, in this discussion about irregardless. I was looking at some, um, some comments from copy editors um, and apparently, I mean, I didn't know this, but apparently the, uh, the Guardian US copy editors, they included it um, on a list of the most horrible words in 2016. Um, and in their comments, they described it as evidence that the language is in decline, which I thought was interesting, um, that they would, you know, be involved in the, this kind of discourse that that um, that language is is somehow kind of on a slippery slope, and we, we better watch out. Um, but then there was another one. Um, I thought this was this was even more interesting. Um, Chris Taylor, I'm going to name and shame him. Um, he said, um, I think this was an English copy editor. Clearly, if, en- if enough people use a word, including irregardless, it is a word. But clearly, anyone who uses the word irregardless is an idiot. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it, it's just it's just that I don't know how that that idea that you can um, you can assess somebody's intelligence based on the word that they choose to use or, or not use, um, I thought was was interesting there. Yeah, and again, like, 
is old news as far as linguists go. There's there's a set of really lovely lectures that A-level English language teachers will be familiar with, I'm sure. From Gina Aitchison, so the Wreath lectures where she where she basically kind of states that this this attitude towards language changing um, and a sort of horror and pearl clutching uh, at certain words coming into dictionaries or going out of dictionaries, even though nobody uses them, um, is nothing new and has been around forever. Uh, and them being also linked to social decline or moral decline is also nothing new and has been around forever for about as long as people have been talking about language and commenting on language. Uh, so definitely nothing new there. Um, but there is another another story which uh, is about words going um, going out rather than coming in. Um, yeah, so I, I picked up um, one story that was covered by the Sun and the Daily Mail. Um, and this is about, about um, language change and, and um, terms being taken out of usage. Um, and I thought it was interesting the way that it was... Um, the way, it, the way that it was represented by both newspapers. Um, both newspapers um, used the headline, um, Navy's Man Overboard, or that was The Sun, and the Daily Mail used Man Overboard. Um, and then the story is about the Royal Navy banning terms. And the, the two terms that, that I could glean that actually may have been um, taken out of common usage were unmanned and manpower. Um and so not man overboard at all, but that, you know, that was the headline that, that suggests that we're, you know, nobody's allowed to say man overboard anymore. Um, so that was what was picked up in all of the comments. You know, people were um, quite, you know, um, quite incensed that, you know, we were stopping, we were stopped, we were being stopped being able to use language that would save lives. And, 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 because you're so busy, you're so busy wondering what you can say instead of man overboard that the poor person has drowned in the in the meantime. That was the that's the logic behind okay. it. Um, but I thought also the the way that um, quotes were used was interesting, and and how they're attributed um, as well. So um, there was one quotation that said um, a senior officer. So this is an unnamed senior officer senior officer said this is a pathetic woke distraction from keeping Britain safe um, and I think that it, it kind of follows a, a trend doesn't it in in new pe newspapers that we can say something um, without really having any evidence of anybody saying mm. it if we just say one senior officer or one source says um, and you can get away with some saying something that that's quite kind of inflammatory mm. really um, and it certainly in this case leads to a lot of people getting really angry I mean yeah that's you're right because I mean it's, you're saying if that's in the article then you know all you have to do is go on the comments afterwards and you end mm. up with some of the least informed vitriolic kind of stuff that you can possibly find. I've just kind of taken a few screenshots of some of the comments afterwards. And I mean, there's a couple that are vaguely funny in a kind of 1970s humour kind of way. Um, but there's other ones which are just, you, you can see the sort of pent up rage and mm. resentment against any change in society that's happened since the 1950s. So mm. there's someone here who says, um, this tomato head from Liverpool says, God help the Royal Navy if they ever go into battle. I proudly imagine a British fleet with my chest bursting with pride, standing aboard the flagship HMS the good ship Lollipop, captained by the Admiral Rue Paul, who's sporting a lovely tailored navy blue jacket and matching miniskirt. The colour really suits his eyes. 
With the enemy in sight and scenes reminiscent of Horatio Nelson, um, he squeaks in a Julian Clary kind of voice, man the person station. So I'm assuming there was something gender-based around the, the, the Royal Navy's decision, was it, Jackie? Well, yeah, I mean, kind of hidden within the article is, is one um, sentence where you think, Okay, this is what it's about. Um, this is another qu- uh, another quote. A source said, "Leadership are keen to ensure that where practicable, gendered terms aren't used." And you think, "Oh, well, okay, that's that's what it's all about." You know, no big deal. But then it gets wrapped inside something that that is just you feel as though it's just create created to um, to. Um, to sow seeds of discontent amongst the population and, and get us all turning against each other. There's sort of a wider common issue there again, a bit like with irregardless and people thinking that there are rules and if they're not followed, that's not okay somehow because generally that's what they've been taught. And it's the same with sort of supposedly neutral terms like manpower or unmanned that of course linguistically aren't neutral. I mean, they are gendered. Um, and one of the great things about studying language at a slightly higher level than maybe be the average person is that you get to really dig into these and have a look at why they've en- why that's there why they've ended up there uh, and what it exposes kind of about our history and our past um and how we can change you know a potential future by being a bit more thoughtful about the way that we use gender terms um but but I mean, if you if you don't want to think about that, and if the the change in any word is an affront to your to your identity, then that that makes it tricky, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Um. So I think that just about does us for language in the news for this episode of Alexis. Uh, you can find out about the things we've been talking about, the articles and the comments in the show notes of this podcast. Up next, we've got an interview with Philip Sargent, who's talking about his new book and also emojis. Okay, so we're joined on this edition of Lexis by Dr. Philip Sargent, who's Senior Lecturer in Applied Linguistics at The Open University. Um, He's the author of many books about language, but two of the most recent are The Emoji Revolution and The Art of Political Storytelling. So thanks very much for joining us, Philip. Hi there, thanks for inviting me. So Philip, thinking about um, emojis first, um, we would like to know um, what you think accounts for the rapid rise of the emoji in online communication. Um, They haven't been around that long, but they seem to be pretty ubiquitous now. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about emojis is they're they're absolutely tied to online communication. And as a particular type of online communication, particularly social media, well, texting and then social media sort of took off. emojis emerged at the same time or developed from other things but emerged at the same time and fill a particular gap in the way in the type of communication also they add to the type of communication we do on social media and add something specific that gets lost that would otherwise get lost um so i mean the basic the basic use of emojis is as um emotional framing for text they nearly they're nearly always used alongside text rather than uh, separately other, other than when they're just you know part of a, a simple conversation and you just, you just you re- respond with one emoji um and the thing about sort of the thing about um written communication is it's much more difficult to or more complicated to um add that sort of emotional framing that comes from tone of voice 
comes from facial expressions, comes from how close or near you're standing to someone, all these physical embodiment aspects of, of, of talk, uh, of talk, um, spoken communication, um, or person-to-person, face-to-face communication, get lost when you're writing. And when you're writing a letter or something you've, and you've got time to craft it and put them, work around, work about, work out other ways to sort of add that, that's fine. But um, so much social media communication is very rapid, casual, mm. conversation-like writing. And so that gets stripped out and emojis sort of fill that gap perfectly. So they're sort of, they're sort of um, uh, a digital uh, solution to a digital problem. So that's why they've emerged very much alongside, um, yeah, alongside so online communication, but particularly social media. There has been, um, I mean, I've certainly read a few articles where um, people have bemoaned the fact that emojis seem to be taking over the language and, and we should be worried that we're returning to, um, you know, using hieroglyphics almost. Um, do you think there's any cause for concern either socially or linguistically about the rise of the, the emoji? No, is the simple answer. I mean, I think it, it's 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 similar to texting. The the actual sort of the linguistics behind it, uh, behind uh, communicating with emojis, can be quite complex. You're doing a lot of complex. Uh, uh, there's complex meaning making going on with them. It's not just you know a picture of something standing in for something else. It's often much more complicated than that. So on one level, there's that. On the other, as I say, they're always, uh, they're nearly always used in conjunction with written language. So they're not really replacing it. They're not something of and by themselves entirely. Um, and it's the nature of the way we communicate that we, are, people are all very adept at communicating in different ways, in different circumstances mm. be that in different social circumstances or in different technological circumstances so emojis just as i say they really they just add to the sort of add to the way we're able to communicate they're not they don't subtract they're, they're not replacing anything and so from that point of view it, it there's that sort of inevitable moral panic that comes mm. when a new technology comes along and it, yes yeah, so it's sort of uh, initially related to a, a younger generation i mean that's not the case anymore with emojis people of all ages use them but it's related to that so there's a sort of moral panic about what the youth today are doing and so forth so i think that's where that comes from but linguistically um, and communicatively it's not it really isn't an issue it's it's as there is complex and um uh, as flexible as any other types of communication, especially because, as I say, they're used with other communication, with other resources. And it's just interesting as well, you said that they sort of go alongside other forms of communication, they add to it. They did. They do appear to sort of, I think, as you said at the start, they kind of allow a sort of, what, embodied kind of language, framing of things in a more interactive way that you can't normally do when you're writing. So do they, they offer a what a different dimension to online communication that we wouldn't normally have yeah that's that's exactly it they offer um uh, they enhance the type of as i say a, a lot of a lot of online communication is still writing based mm. and writing but it's writing based that's very conversational very rapid it's not edited in the way that a lot of other types of writing would be you know writing an essay or even writing a letter or something where you're you're composing something. Um, and because of that, um, 
it's very easy, as we know, when you don't have the full context mm. of what someone's meaning, you can very easily misinterpret it. The sort of the, the, the most obvious example is irony, when people don't misread, which happens on the internet all the time, misread the ironic intentions of something mm. or, or the humorous intentions of something, um, then the communication can go horribly awry. Um, and and even with things like emojis, it does. But emojis can add add that aspect to it. You know, you put a smiley face at the end. In theory, that helps. That helps uh, um, um, flag up to, to the person you're writing to that, that that's the way it's meant. Yeah, Which, as I, I say, I, would be similar in tone of voice, or you know, saying something with a smile, yeah. or the way you look. I've heard a couple of linguists argue that they are, in fact, a form of gesture, a sort of digital gesture. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, though, I mean, the other thing about emojis is there's quite a wide variety of different types of things now. Um, but, but some of them are very straightforward representations of gestures. Um, and, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of them started, of the original ones, are very straightforward representations of facial expressions mm. and so for, to that extent yes they're you know facepalm or whatever yeah. it is the, these mm. sorts of gestures exactly yes these sorts of gestures um that either are innate or are culturally specific mm. um or culturally learned in particular different cultures um and yeah they add as i say they frame they frame often they frame what's being said verbally so philip um talking now about um your book the art of political storytelling i'm just wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit about the role of the story in modern politics and how it's become so powerful the idea about uh, storytelling in politics is well the initial idea is that storytelling is always a very good uh, way of persuading people it's a very good way of putting information across um, both sort of factual information or information about values but also particularly uh, communication sort of based on emotions and things. And so it's always been, it's always been a resource, a rhetorical resource, I suppose. And so it's always been part of politics. So um, I guess you've already sort of alluded to the, the, uh, the, the narrative strategies um, used by politicians, but I'm just wondering which ones do you think we can keep an eye out for and what devices do you, do you think we should be looking out for? So there are different, type, different ways of looking at narrative and storytelling, of course. But there, one popular way, especially in um, sort of the teaching of dramatic storytelling, is the idea of archetypal stories. You know, this idea of there being seven basic plots or 22 basic plots or what, however number of basic plots there are. But there are certain <laughs> archetypal stories which, where a structure underpins a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of different actual, different sort of types of narrative, and so as I say, this one one uh, one type of archetypal plot which we see time and again in politics is this idea of um, overcoming the monster, the, the monster at, a, at the gate of a lone warrior going out into enemy territory to fight the monster and so forth, and it's. It, uh, that's it's an archetype in, in lots of things, but it's almost become a parody of itself. I mean, the other day, I think Donald Trump actually tweeted that he was a lone warrior yeah. himself. So you've got this sort of, you know, this very explicit use of that. And obviously, um, then you demonize particular groups, you demonize particular ideas, 
uh, and then you if that's an excellent way of uh, well rousing people's emotions and so that's a classic one the other one that I think we see a lot especially in the states and also in conservative circles is the sort of Cinderella story mm. of a thing of mm. you know um, someone pulling themselves up by the bootstraps making their way in the world against the odds starting uh, uh, starting with nothing but through their own resolve and their own uh, hard work being able to achieve something um, and that underpin well that underpins nearly all American politics in one mm. way or another because it's the idea behind the American dream but it also underpins a lot of uh, conservative thinking generally um, so you'll find nearly all American politicians will somehow shape their message to that as I say, you can slot different things into this um, to make it, although, although it's a con, sort of an, an archetypal conservative structure, at the same time, you can slot different values in, I suppose. So it isn't, act, isn't just one side of the politics. Or, I was going to ask, is there, a, is there a British equivalent to that? Well, I mean, I, 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 think, I, think, the conserved, I, I think a conservative government generally does play to that you know belief of self-sufficiency uh belief of uh, um you know providing people with benefits providing is uh, um, is a hindrance rather than the, than a help and so forth and as i say self-sufficiency giving people the opportunity supposedly um to make their own way in the world mm. through their own devices and things um and that's yeah that that's not a that's slot that that sort of fits onto that cinderella archetype mm. very very well mm. um and it's you know it's quite an inspirational idea quite an inspirational story it's a, the sort of story you find in a lot of hollywood films or not even it's, hollywood films i suppose as well so, when you if you then attach it to a kind of immigrant narrative as well you get the sort of story of the good immigrant who you know pulls themselves up, doesn't take any handouts, fits in with the culture that they're in, makes their way, and you get that kind of narrative as well, don't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, as I was saying, it, although, <laughs> although it does, it, it fits very well onto that conservative ideal, if we, if we look in the American context, you can put different, yeah, you can slot different values in or, or different... Um, contexts in and it works just as well for Barack Obama mm. you know um, that, the speech his uh, audacity of hope speech being mm. you know this is a place where anyone can get on even you know a skinny chap with a funny name or whatever the line was <laughs> um that's 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 again it's a Cinderella story that's exactly mm. it America provides him the opportunity to mm. become president despite the fact that he was yeah um, his, his father was an immigrant and so forth. And of course the story itself doesn't have to have any relation to fact in, in, in real life, does it? Because I mean, Trump himself has used that narrative about himself, you know, the humble millionaire's <laughs> son who came from nothing. <laughs> it's just crazy. Absolutely, yeah. And to an extent, Boris Johnson does. Maybe not that he's come from nothing and so forth. But he definitely uses that, that he's... I suppose actually, this is more the overcoming the monster story. That he's an outsider coming in to... Despite the fact that he's, you know, been part of the political establishment since, you know, before he was born. Um, but, yeah, that he's an outsider coming in to take on the corrupt, uh, the corrupt forces of 
Westminster, Europe, EU, the EU, whatever it is. Um, so he, he manages to, to, to enact, I mean, particularly through the way he actually, you know, literally acts, uh, the way he speaks, the way he looks, the way he behaves, this idea of the sort of non-conventional politician who's, who's a non-conformist and thus is able to take on the entrenched establishment. And again, that's exactly what Trump does, you know. Again, he's as much a part of the establishment, as much a part of the elite, mm. certainly, as anyone, and yet he can, you know, vilify the, the elite. And I imagine that that types into a into another kind of archetypal story about about the rebel, the rebel against kind of some mass, some faceless mass, which may or may not be named and probably changes depending on what they're supposedly rebelling against. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's if, if you look at populism as a narrative, as a sort of as an idea, that's basically it. It's sort of it's um, it's the people up against the corrupt, faceless, bureaucratic, whatever it is, and then a champion in the in the in the um, in the shape of the uh, the populist leader coming and fighting them. And so, so, are there are there particular strategies that they might use to position themselves as that leader, as kind of the person who leads the people against the sort of faceless force, like specific well, say, think, strategies or? Uh, there were there was there are certainly semiotic strategies a lot of it is to do with actually enacting that role you know mm. there are linguistic strategies i think to an extent um certainly discursive strategies but if you look for example just at the uh these the, the issue around masks within the pandemic at the moment mm. you know bolsonaro refusing to wear a mask uh trump refusing to wear a mask until the, the last moment um yeah. Um, Boris Johnson shaking hands on the very day that the uh, yes. the body um, overseeing these things was saying, "Don't shake hands." There's that breaking, the, you know, breaking the rules, constantly doing mm. the opposite of what you're supposed to. Um, I think linguistically or discursively, again, there are these these um, the way uh, uh, Johnson, to an extent, Trump certainly. Um, speak from the heart, speak, um, you know, uh, in a, an off-the-cuff, unrestrained way, mm. um, again, is enacting exactly that. It's enacting mm. sort of tell the idea of telling it how it is. Now, it's... Mm. Like a performative authenticity. Yeah, authenticity yeah. is the idea, yeah. And I, and I think that's, I think linguistic strategies, the nicknames, for example, that, that, that Trump uses all the time, you know, again, that's breaking the convention mm. of what you would normally expect for the, yes, exactly, for the, uh, for the sort of the discourse of a president. Mm. Um, and by doing that, he's positioning himself as this sort of, you know, um, a different type of president, a president who's, on the side of the people and all the rest of it. You mentioned a minute ago the uh, issue of mask wearing um, in the global pandemic and some of the sort of narratives that have evolved in, uh, around that. Um, what do you think more widely in the face of this sort of global pandemic will be the sort of takeaway stories? Um, will we have any narratives about that, do you think? Political narratives? Yeah, I, 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 mean, I think it's too early to tell what we'll actually be, end up with. I, I, what's been very interesting is that there was a stage at the, early in the pandemic um, 
where you got the sense that everything was changing everything was going to be different from here on in. Mm -hmm. And then bit by bit, all the normal things, all the not normal things, all the uh, political concerns that had been uh, going on beforehand came back or um, um, came up again and often in a more extreme way. So the whole discourse around fake news for a while was huge and then pandemic got in the way and then it turns out that the pandemic's a perfect breeding ground for fake news. Um, Brexit, of course, that for a while we thought, you know, God, that was just a sort of petty argument we were all having back in January. Then come April and May, you know, we're back in this reality. So I think it's a bit too early to tell what the, what the um, yeah, what we'll actually be left with once, <laughs> once it all sort of simmers down. Um, I think from, from a narrative point of view, there have been two interesting things. One is this this way that it seems that populist leaders are, are the worst at dealing with it. And there's this sense that that sort of um, vision of the world that they've been selling, creating and selling, when it comes up against the sort of reality of a virus spreading through the, uh, uh, spreading through society and, and, uh, and killing a lot of people, that, that sort of reality is too real for, this um, mythical idea of society they've brought they've uh, um they've been sub subscribing to um and so again it's uh, you know i think the the countries with the three uh, worst death dolls at the moment are the us brazil and the uk and as we were just mentioned as we were just talking about all three of those leaders have been very bad at putting out a consistent message because their idea of leadership is different from an idea of you know collective responsibility and so mm. forth um so that's so that sort of the, the the populist narrative really doesn't seem to be um really doesn't seem to be compatible with this this situation the other interesting thing is that i think a narrative that was very notable in the uk at least well in the uk specifically at the beginning was this sort of collective spirit of the the british people or uh, of yeah of uh, of the UK um, sort of you know good naturedly coming together in a stoic way the sort of blitz spirits uh, the clap for carers thing for example and, yes and uh, yeah. you know pr protecting the, uh, taking great um, uh, yeah supporting the NHS supporting carers and so forth um, and that what that was you know um, that was a narrative that you could have seen working very well to coordinate society uh, in a response, but then it got sort of burst by well, the Dominic Cummings, Barnard Castle thing particularly, but but other other things, and so that narrative seems to have got you know gone by the way now, um, and so at the moment, uh, yeah, it, it's very difficult to tell where we're, where we'll end up. As I say, it seems the populist narrative definitely isn't working and has come sort of. Um, uh, it's bumping up, c c colliding with a, a reality which just doesn't suit it, um, and that yeah, a lot of that that sense of optimism <laughs> that things could change and that we you know we value different things in a different way, such as um, you know key workers and, and so forth, seems to have been dissipated a little bit. So sorry, it all sounds horribly pessimistic. Um, but, <laughs> But it leads it us beautifully <laughs> on to our last question for you. You know, you talked a, a bit about the idea of narrative 
in terms of sort of political ideology, if you like. Um, and I suppose that narratives are often kind of, you know, consist of metaphor, don't they? Um, there's a lot of metaphors involved in those kind of things. Are there, yeah. are there any ways in which, you know, those of us who might want to sort of challenge those dominant narratives can, you know, find a perspective to do that from? Is there a sort of viable way of challenging some of the, the ways these have been set up? Well, as I say, I mean, the, 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 those sort of underlying structures aren't, are, are not politicised one way or the other. Um, it's, it's been the case for some reason, and it's a good question, it's a, a, a tricky question to understand quite why, that the, the right has been much better at sort of cutting directly to the quick and making sort of big, simple points, often narrative-based, than the, the left has. The left has often... Um, um, yeah, got bogged down in details and in um, facts and, th and and so forth like that, and hasn't got through <laughs> with a consistent message, um, or, or 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 not just a consistent message, hasn't got through with a, a message that's that sort of cuts through all the noise and so forth. Especially mm. in the context we're living in these days, with uh, online communication, where conflict is what draws attention, uh, garners attention, and and um, thus gets noticed and gets picked up. Um, so the, the sort of basic, um, yeah, the, the basic uh, tools of, of storytelling uh, in political context should work for any side. As I say, but, um, Barack Obama was very good at mm. positioning himself as this, you know, uh, a candidate for change, a candidate who will get things done, yes we can, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's just that for some reason the, um, the, the left... Historically speaking, hasn't been as good as it. I think the other thing to say about what the, the sort of position we're in at the moment is an interesting one, in that um, the sort of excesses of that type of uh, rhetorical approach, which has pushed things to such an extreme that often the story being told is completely out of touch with reality, or for want of a better word lots of people you know politicians lying all the time lying all the time is that the the oppositions we're seeing at the moment joe biden in the states uh and keir starmer here they don't really at the moment they themselves aren't really pushing a particular message they probably i mean they've got their own subtle messages and things but they haven't got a clear you know vision that they're pushing their story at the moment is that they're not trump they're not boris johnson mm. Kirstarmer to an extent is not Corbyn. He's something different from that. And so mm -hmm. they're sort of they're pushing forward a, a story of competence and um, you know, level-headed normality compared to this sort of uh, um, yeah, burlesque. Irrational way. bluster. Exactly, the irrational bluster, which is often, yes, based on, you know, a stack of lies and things. So how how that will work is is an interesting question. But um mm. But that that's that's a, that's the the sense I get at the moment with with these things. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just it's interesting to kind of think about where this fits in with other stuff we've done on the podcast as well. Because this this sounds very sort of big picture. It's like the sort of highest yeah. level of your sort of language pyramid, if you like, isn't it? The sort of what yeah. everything feeds into. You know, we've we spend a lot of time talking about things like kind of accent and tiny variations in sound and individual word choices grammar and things like that and you're working up I mean where you're operating with this kind of thing discursive you know storytelling level is is a different level entirely isn't it 
it is but i do think i mean it's it's sort of built up so um um in terms of you were mentioning metaphors for some uh, a moment ago the way all ideas are framed relate to these sort of bigger ideas so you know the way an idea is is being framed by a particular uh, a particular uh, um, political uh, leader or, or, or party or something that feeds into the same story you know that's very much so that cinderella story of um of um, lifting yourself up by your bootstraps making your own way in the world will um be played out in the way that people talk about taxes for example and how they position how the actual language they're using around that mm. and things like that um whether you, they're using collective language or they're using individualistic language right uh, and things things like this there was a, there was a for example a um a memo sent round by the uh, what are they called the tax alliance the uh, that sort of alliance is it right wing anti tax yeah. group um talking about ways in which you can um ensure that uh, sort of remove socialism from your uh, from um from the way you talk about uh, uh, social issues um, and it was saying that never talk about our NHS, talk about the NHS and things like that. So it's little, little subtle linguistic things mm. which then relate to these these bigger issues or yeah. these bigger narratives. And so I suppose that that that's a way in which discourse runs right from the choices we make about language and so forth, uh, very specific parts of language to the big idea that ideation or ideas um, and there's some there's some quite nice work being done on kind of small stories in new media isn't there um a couple of researchers looking at kind of um the telling of anecdotes either online or in spoken conversation uh, and how they often adhere to either larger narratives that are archetypal um but also looking at things like phonology and turns and um, emoji and various other things that can be yeah. utilized in online chat, uh, but in kind of the, the, the shrunken down small uh, versions of stories. So the, the telling of, you know, what happened last night or uh, what you did on the weekend, uh, but it's definitely replicated. They're definitely all tied together, aren't they? Yes, no, absolutely. And, and, and you know, these, these things that we've been talking about, are abstracts really i mean on the whole they're abstracts as uh, dan was saying you know every now and again trump will actually write a tweet where he makes the case of him being an outsider coming in and uh, shape uh, you know or starting his business with just a million pounds and then from that building an empire or something but otherwise yes these are sort of abstract abstract stories which are built up from as you say actual little bits and pieces of people often collective collective storytelling on social media you know people spreading memes people writing about little incidents and so forth mm -hmm. and then together that that becomes a story and one very sort of clear um uh way one sort of environment where you can see this very clearly is the, the conspiracy theories which are sort of they're, they're circulated by social media, circulated on the internet, but they're also created on the on the internet and created by multiple people, sort of putting the parts together, drawing, you know, writing little bits and pieces and finding little pieces of evidence and adding that all together to create this big story. 
Um, so absolutely, I think, again, the discourse is, it, it operates on, on different levels, but it always starts with pe people actually doing interaction, actually expressing themselves in, uh, in, 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 in yeah, using language or, or whatever. Um, so we've just got our quick fire questions left for right. you. What is your favourite book about language? I sort of struggled with this because I don't know if I necessarily have one, but th there I've got two, two ways of answering it. From an academic point of view, I think the books by Jan Blomertz that he wrote in the about 10, 15 years ago about discourse mm. and sociolinguistics. When one they is are just excellent, called, aren't they? And one's called The Sociolinguistics of Globalisation. Uh, have, were hugely influential for me um, in looking at the way that society and uh, and language fit together, and particularly this idea of how beliefs about language are a part of language. So that's one answer. A more general answer, going back further, I think um, Brian Friel's play Translations. And what is your favourite linguistic fact or idea? One, again, something you brought up earlier, is the way that a lot of people... Um, when they're um, dismissing emoji as a, a sort of, as, as a, a valid form of communication, say, well, they're just like hieroglyphics. Um, we're sort of we're regressing back to mm. uh, the time of ancient Egypt. But I think one of the interesting things about emojis um, is that you can trace, you can actually trace through the history of writing emojis right back directly back to hieroglyphics um, because the history of writing is mm. you know it's a causal thing one thing happened after another and so a particularly nice example of this is the Vulcan salute there's an emoji for the Vulcan salute um, and I don't know if you know that that exactly that's what it looks like <laughs> and that, that that in itself when when Leonard Nimoy um, um, created it he based it on um, on a Hebrew letter, um, which uh, in turn was, was based on um, a Phoenician letter, which in turn was based on a, on a hieroglyph. So That's the hieroglyph for tooth, apparently. <laughs> um, so you can see that there is actually a direct line between the very earliest types of writing to the very latest types of writing. Um, and it's not arbitrary, you know, they're, they're, the history of writing and the history of language, yeah, is, uh, yeah, is, is important and, uh, and, uh, and complex. And what is your favourite emoji? Okay, that's another good question. Um, I, I think the one I usually go for is the upside down smiling face. <laughs> um, because um, emojis again, coming back to this idea that there are sort of simple, straightforward set, uh, uh, form of communication and that they simply represent things in the world, you know, a car or a car emoji, it represents a car or a smile. Actually, they're much more whimsical and arbitrary about that, uh, arbitrary than that. And I think the upside down smiley face is a perfect example of that because, you know, where did it come from? Why is it there? You never in real life see some, well, and you can see people <laughs> there upside down, but they, it's not a normal part of everyday life. It's something slightly odd. So from that point of view, they, that represents to me something about, as I say, the sort of whimsical, ludic um, uh, element of emoji. And what one bit of advice would you give to budding linguists? Again, from my own perspective of becoming interested in language, 
it was it was that realization that language is never neutral that when whatever you say however you say it you're always taking a stance on something even if you don't realize it and that mm. that's that's sort of embodied in the in the language you use um and i think so in terms of advice looking out for that and working and and seeing paying attention to it and then seeing how it happens is a sort of a, an, an excellent way in to see the complexities of um, of linguistics of sociolinguistics the way it's it's it is about how we communicate and it is about language but it's also about identity it's also about politics it's also about you know pretty much everything we do in in, in a social and cultural way and just being aware of yeah as i say it's never language is never neutral for a variety of complex reasons um, and once you can start to notice that and then analyze it it opens up this sort of uh, this huge yeah reserve of interesting uh, a, a, a interesting lens on on the way you know we function as social beings okay well that's us for now uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time all right see you bye bye, -bye.